Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes 9 together. John, thank you for leading us to the throne, brother. Uh, We will read chapter 9, verse 13, to the end of chapter 10. We're in a big section here. Chapter 9, verse 13, to the end of chapter 10. And after I read... We will pray again, and we'll ask God for his help as I preach. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 10, 20. This is God's word to us. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in high, many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks the wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is in danger by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. But the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth are foolishness, is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land. When your king is the son of nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word today, I simply ask for your grace to be poured out on your people that we might have hearts to receive. 
Would you make here fertile ground for the gospel to go deeply? Or perhaps it's the watering of these seeds. Or perhaps the nurturing of these plants, God. In each and every one of us, I pray that you would give us what we need today so that we might grow as Christians and bring honor and glory to God on high. We thank you for the simple foolishness of preaching. To the world it seems foolish, but we know to us it is good. And Lord, so we call out you, the mighty and gracious one who has given us this wisdom in your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us now as we open it up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I don't know how many of you have actually read uh, A.A. Milne's uh, story, Winnie the Pooh. Probably most of us have seen some of the cartoons or maybe a, a movie or heard an old record. Um, but if you have read it, we, we read it a few years ago as a family out loud, and I was just regularly found myself laughing out loud. It's, it's well done. It's really well done. But probably one of my favorite characters is Eeyore. Eeyore is, uh, you know, the, the caricature of so many different pessimists all rolled into one, right? Um, you know, he's, he's kind of like, as you go along, you're, you're expecting him to have a little better attitude, but he's like, just there, he's like the gift that keeps on giving of, like, deadpan pessimism. You know, that's, that's who he is, it seems like. Uh, let me just give you a sampling of some of his responses to the situations that he finds himself in. He says this, There are those who will wish you good morning if it is a good morning, which I doubt. <laughs> then he says this, don't worry about me, go and enjoy yourself, I'll stay here and be miserable. <laughs> Referring to his tale, he says, uh, it's very much possible that I'm going to lose it once more anyhow. And he says, uh, I never get my hopes up, so I will never get let down. And uh, he talks about the weather, it's the only cloud in the sky and it's drizzling right on me. Somehow, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and finally, this seems to sum up his attitude. End of the road, nothing to do, no hope of things getting better. Now, maybe you have friends that you might label as an Eeyore, or maybe you're that friend, I'm not sure. Um, but anyone can somewhat relate to this. We've met people that are kind of like a Debbie Downer. It seems to be about everything. Uh, I often wonder if that's the way people thought about the writer of Ecclesiastes. I've talked to several offhand, maybe not in our congregation, some in our, hand, in our congregation, who are like, oh yeah, Ecclesiastes. I can connect with him. He's just like such a pessimist and everything's absurd. It's certainly, especially on a, a, a cursory reading, we see that he seems to be some sort of an incredible pessimist. And on the surface, you might think that this is exactly how he lives his life. But if you've been listening along, if you've been reading, you know that that's not exactly true. He's not necessarily an Eeyore character at all. He's not just a flat pessimist or some sort of depressed fatalist. He's a God-fearing realist that hopes in his promises. And in the midst of the depressing circumstances that he finds himself in, he actually commends joy and calls his listeners to live a full life that receives God's gifts as good. Today, we're going to see the trouble in this life, but we won't just leave it in the state of depression. He is going to explain. He will help us learn to navigate in the midst of a life 
that we understand. As we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, you've probably noticed that our author is really good at recognizing absurdity and inconsistencies in the universe. He's really good at kind of rehearsing what the Bible says and then saying, look around. Doesn't seem to come true, does it? When I take a look at my life, it doesn't seem as though all the promises of God are being met here and now. Most recently, at the beginning of chapter 9, we brought up the issue of death. If you remember this last time we got together. He asks, how is it fair that death comes to all people, those who live godly lives and fear him, and those who live wicked lives and say he doesn't even exist? Wasn't it God who told his people that if they obeyed, they would be choosing life? And if they disobeyed, they'd be choosing death? And as Moses speaks in Deuteronomy 30, that's exactly what he says. He calls them to choose life, not death. And we know that, and the readers of Ecclesiastes know that, but then they look around and say, yeah, but everybody's dying. What is going on around us? Here in Ecclesiastes, it doesn't seem to work out so nice and neatly how we thought it should. Everyone dies, whether they're righteous or wicked. Now, this is, this is a great frustration for us, God's people, right? We believe God. We have trusted Him. We have trusted His Son for our eternal salvation. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the real person, the, the carpenter-turned-rabbi, truly was and is the Son of God. We believe that He died, that He rose again, that He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that He will come again. We're, we're far from perfect, and we know that. And, and we want to grow, and we know we have a long way to go, but we've entered together the path of discipleship, the, the way of the cross, right? Repenting of our sin, walking according to the law of Christ, giving up all in order to gain Him, obeying His word, pursuing holiness, trying to, by God's grace, obey and submit to Him and grow and watch and hope that He would fulfill all of His promises. When we look at the Bible, we see God's word is actually very optimistic about the future. The Bible is full of precious and very great promises, as Peter tells us. And yet... We look around and wonder if those promises are ever really going to come true for us. And man, I've talked to so many of us, and myself included, who so easily go down the path of doubt, not sure what's really going to happen past the veil of death. Not that we think that God is a liar. We trust Him. We do. We, we know. But it's more like we're not sure that the Christian life is any better than the non-Christian life, right? Especially since the non-Christians seem to be winning in this life, right? I mean, has anyone else experienced this? Because I'll tell you what, it's not just me. If we look around, we can see several people advancing, prospering that just don't deserve it. And this is just our experience. Listen to a quick sampling of Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and, know, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands uh, in, in innocence. Anyone able to kind of take a, take a look at their life and resonate with this passage? To see those around that seem to prosper, although they are wicked and don't care a lick for God and His glory? We know that the Bible gets us ready for the afterlife, right? But it sure doesn't seem to work as a dominant philosophy here on earth. It seems, you know, like the wisdom found in the Bible isn't really good at getting us ahead in the current world that we live in. Last week, we covered the first half of chapter 9 in Ecclesiastes 9, and we ended with this strong feeling, right? We understood this. If both the good and the evil somehow die, why should we live righteously? Why should we carry on in this way at all? In our text this week, we realize that this same frustration about good versus evil actually exists in the realm of wisdom and foolishness. Now, that's not to say that wisdom has no good results here on earth. It certainly does. We know that. But our writer knows that even wisdom doesn't guarantee us the life that we want or sometimes that we expect. In fact, those who are wise are just like the righteous. Ultimately, like the first verse in chapter 9 tells us, the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Here's the message today. Verse 16, basically. You take a look there. It sums it up nice. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of flush it out here, but... I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Living wisely is ultimately the best way to live. It's true. But here on earth, very few acknowledge this truth. So what's the answer for us? Should we give in to the, to the foolishness and, and join the other people who are living by the rules of the world? No. Our author here encourages us to carefully interact with the world, submitting ourselves to authority, and exercising true wisdom in each and every situation. If I were to give today's sermon in one sentence, this is what it would be. Although the superiority of wisdom is often thwarted by sin and folly, wisdom is still the best way to navigate life under the sun. Let me say that again. If I, if, this was kind of, if I gave you the whole sermon in one section, one, 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 one sentence, it would say this. Although the superiority of wisdom is often thwarted by folly and sin, wisdom is still the best way to navigate this life under the sun. Now, let's take a look at our passage and see how that unfolds. Look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 9, and we're going to read through the first verse of chapter 10 there. He says this, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. 
there was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. In verse 13, we're given the context for this this thought, this discussion that we're going to have. He's talking about an example of wisdom that's under the sun. Now, this will prove to be important as we start to draw theological and practical conclusions. We're learning about wisdom that is under the sun. In just two verses, he tells us this story about a a little city, probably pretty small, insignificant, pretty weak, but this city was attacked by a great king and his troops. We're not told why. They probably had driven the citizens into their walls, caused them to shut their gates on themselves, and what they were doing was waiting them out probably trying to cut off water supply and food, starve them out, bring these siege works so that they could enter the city and take it over. I mean, this is a bad position for this small city. It's probably just a matter of time before the great king overtakes them. But in this little city, someone came up with a plan. Now, whether it's some sort of military counteraction or perhaps some kind of effective diplomacy and talking, we don't really know. But we do know is that the plan worked. The little city was saved from the threat of the great king. But it just so happens that the person who did this was a poor but wise man. That's the story. It's the whole thing. And as the story closes out in verse 15, we'd think that this poor wise man might become some sort of a legend. But we'd be wrong. Instead, no one remembered the poor man at all. Now, just think about the mindset of the rest of the people in the city for a moment, how they would not remember this person. The cultural elite admit, yes, of course, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. Or, you know, the other saying, like, a broken clock is right twice a day. You know, we can take that. Yeah, yeah, good job, but you're still just a poor man. Your position for us is is not that much importance. You're still culturally irrelevant to us. Now, now when we hear that, it's so frustrating, isn't it? That effectiveness and wisdom doesn't actually win the day in the city. It's so frustrating, but that's actually the whole reason he's bringing this up for us. We, the reader, know that actually Proverbs 4 says that the most important thing for us to get is wisdom. I like how um, the King James, the old King James version says it. It says, wisdom is the principal thing. But this wisdom doesn't bring a person cultural relevance or recognition or honor even. We'll get there in a minute. Let's first see in this section here how he talks about wisdom. He's making some value statements about these things that are actually better. Notice how he uses these value words, better. He says this, basically, wisdom is superior. Living wisely is ultimately the best way to live. I want you to take a look at verse 16 and 17 and see it for yourself. Notice the word better three times. He's going to say it here. He says that wisdom is better than might. He says that quiet words of the wise are better than the loud words of a foolish ruler. 
he says that wisdom is better than weapons of war. Now, this is the Bible speaking to us, right? Do you get it? We should heed this. We actually know it already, but we shouldn't take this for granted. He's actually pushing us here. So let me ask you the question. We're going to start for application right from the beginning here. Um, are these sayings true of you? Is wisdom important to you? How much of your time is spent pursuing it? I mean, we know that Proverbs 2.6 tells us that it is the Lord who gives us wisdom. And then it was read this morning, Dan read it from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, that actually a person is our wisdom from God, Jesus Christ himself. So how are you doing at pursuing wisdom? That's what I'm asking you. Could you define wisdom biblically? Have you given it much thought? Well, if, if I could for a moment have a, a listen to all of your prayers, how many times would be, you be asking God for wisdom? If it's so important for us to live by, do we take it so seriously to pursue it and then to live by it? How about your desire and your discipline to know God through Christ, our true wisdom? Are you pursuing communion with God as you read the Bible? Are you drawing near to the one who is our true wisdom and therefore being connected to the very fountain of wisdom, God himself and Jesus? Are you thinking about these things on a regular basis? And then, of course, the important question out of all this is, yes, are we pursuing it? But my next question is, are you doing anything about it? Are you living wisely? Or is it an after effect that we kind of look back at 2021 and like, did we live wisely? I'm not really sure. My question is, are you thinking today, how do I live wisely according to the fear of the Lord and look forward in each decision that it might please God and that I might actually live with wisdom? In this passage, however ironic and annoying things are about to get in a moment, we are reminded of the superior value of wisdom, and thus we're called to get it and to use it. But the value of wisdom isn't the only thing he talks about here in these verses. Amidst high praise for wisdom, he gets real, and he tells us what the world thinks about wisdom. The world does not value wisdom in the same way. It values loud speech, weapons of war, and strength. Look again at verses 16, 17, and 18. He tells us that this world, in this world, the poor man's wisdom is what? Despised. Uh, the, the poor man's words are not heard. He tells us that no matter how many good and wise actions have been taken, it only takes one sinner or one fool to destroy the good works of the wise. Thus, his clever little statement in verse 1, right? Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment get off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Another tragedy that doesn't seem to add up for our author here in Ecclesiastes is the fact that just a little sinful foolishness can undo so much of the great work done by God-fearing wise people. We're beginning to see that wisdom is superior, but in this world it is often thwarted or outweighed by the folly and sin. That being said, He's going to take the rest of chapter 10 to tell us, get this, live wisely. He's, he's admitting what's going on here. 
He's showing this here underneath the sun that the best thing is wisdom, but it's so thwarted so easily with sin and folly. Yet, what is he going to do? Turn back and say, but I'm telling you to live wisely. This is grace for us today. Uh, what he's doing here, even though it uh, isn't fully effective under the sun, it still is the best way to live. With some effects now, yes, but sweet and lasting effects for eternity. This is grace for us, like I said, because he is coming alongside of us. Think about this as if he were to visit us today. What he is doing is saying, hey, I get it. I understand. You, you try to obey and do the right thing, but it doesn't seem to work out so well for you when you really think about the results. I know that it seems better to just join everybody else in how they think about the world and take the, the worldly wisdom and live it up here. But I'm here to encourage you to fear God and live according to true wisdom. In this next section, then, you'll see that he is placing us in the position that most of us are actually in, the position of the poor man. In other words, someone who doesn't have political position, someone who doesn't run with the social elite, someone who has the function in society under the rule of governing authorities. This isn't just a financial term when he's using this. In verses 2 through 4, he admits that wise people will naturally differentiate themselves from fools, simply in how they live. But that doesn't mean that they should try to uh, expose or correct the foolishness of powers that are in operation. Look at verse 2 through 4. He says this, a wise, man, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. The wise person knows that there is a right way to act, a way of submission and to act intelligently in their surroundings. The book of Ecclesiastes has already made this clear in chapter 8. Just a few weeks ago, we touched this, if you remember. Verses 2 through 4, he tells us that we are to keep the king's command. Uh, it, it told us not to stand against the king in matters of opinion or things that please him uh, because he said already that the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? We recognize this authority structure. Yes, wisdom certainly knows better even than a king sometimes or our rulers or our governors or our bosses. But that doesn't mean that you and I should go out of our way to show that we are right and reigning uh, you know, over these hierarchical powers that, that they are wrong somehow. Now, just let me take it aside. On matters of sin, absolutely. We know this to be true. The Bible is full of instances where it shows that we will obey God rather than man. That's not what he's talking about here. He is telling us to act wisely under our authorities. Verse 5 through 7, he continues this theme. Take a look. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. What he does here is he admits that oftentimes the, the political powers around us place people into positions of authority and prominence that they have no business being there. When it's really looked at, they act far more like someone who's uneducated doesn't know what in the world they're doing. They're not actually that smart. 
They're just doing things according to what they want to do. He's recognizing that, that these rulers have put those people in there. They're unworthy of the position that they hold. Whether that's an actual position in uh, government or in a company, or as probably most of us know, in some kind of social position. Maybe it's unspoken, but all of us ask that question. Why does everyone think so well of them? Or can I just use the word, why are they so cool and everyone else isn't? Like, what is the thing that makes that happen? He points that out and understands here that sometimes there's a position that's given to someone and it doesn't make sense. And this is maddening. And I know that you guys have seen this in your own lives. And that's why he says in verse 5 that this is an evil that he has seen under the sun. He's not talking about rebellion against God when he says evil. He's saying that it doesn't add up when he's thinking about all the different parts. It's like a a corruption in the matrix of life, and it it should not happen. Worthy people should be in worthy places. We get that. But what he observes when he's looking around is that at times, unworthy people are in those places. The wise person understands this and continues on in wisdom, living in the fear of the Lord despite these incongruities. Now, take a look at verses 8 through 11. He's going to remind us that we are to interact with these different relationships in a way where we actually use wisdom. Not that we're just wise people in general, as though somehow if we come to church, we get a download of wisdom, and it just kind of like emanates. No, we actually have to act wisely. We have to make choices. We have to respond and think about what's going on. He says, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. What he's doing is looking around at like the jobs that people do, and he's showing the inherent risk in all of them. Probably to our community, I could say something more like this. If you fly a helicopter, there's a real danger of crashing to the ground if you don't use wisdom. Or perhaps something more like this. If you work and live on a submarine, you may drown unless you use wisdom, right? We understand these things. There's an inherent risk in so many of these things that we do. In his words here, what good is wisdom if we don't use it to charm the deadly snake that is about to bite us? The charmer actually has to do something, has to act wisely. We are all inherently, we understand and know the risks that surround us, but a wise person takes these into consideration and uses wisdom to navigate the situations that they're in. The same is true of us here on earth as poor men. that's, That's our position before our rulers. We can only benefit from wisdom if we actually use it. Wisdom then helps us to succeed. Now, we understand what that means is that we must practice. We must get wisdom. We must try. We must learn more and more how to do these things before God. He calls us to implement these things, these wisdom of God, as we interact in our world. He carries the idea forward here in verses 12 through 15. He says this, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool 
wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. I mean, this is, this is like straight out of Proverbs, right? What I mean by that is it's, it's like basic Sunday school stuff that is worth its weight in gold. Very simply put, the fool is the one that talks and talks and talks. And, the, and their talk even sounds pretty good to everyone around them, at least for a while. But that fool doesn't really know what he's talking about. But when he multiplies words, it sounds like he does know what he's talking about. He tells people what they should do. And that way he gives advice, good advice, right? Man, he sounds so wise to everybody else. He's got good advice for everybody, but in time, his foolishness reveals that he doesn't really know where he's going with his life at all. The wise person is different. A wise person knows that if he or she doesn't have the answers, they should not speak, but rather seek the true answer from God. Can I stop for a moment here then ask the question? Um, I want to ask about this category here. The modern day talk show, right, or the even more modern day platform of Instagram, TikTok, or Facebook has given everyone the ability to multiply their own words to the world, right? Not to say that these technologies are foolish. Don't get me wrong. People have been multiplying their words long before TikTok was ever invented. But it does seem that in our age, you're a nobody unless you publish yourself out there and tell everybody something. Can I just encourage you to watch your words according to wisdom? Can I encourage you to gain favor with God by the way that your speech goes out of your mouth? The tongue is a powerful thing. And don't get me wrong, it will quickly expose you. We know that James tells us this. He talks about why that's so important for a teacher to be very careful because they will be held to a higher standard. This is, a, this is a fearful thing even for me as I pray. And I, in a sense, come to the pulpit saying, Lord, please do not let me harm or let stupid things come out of my mouth. But may I be subject to your word. Our words are so important. They have a big, big influence. And if you remember, Jesus tells us that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So it shouldn't surprise us when I, when I tell you, guys, Guard your heart and set it on the course to know and love God supremely. Because out of that heart is what will come out of your mouth. If we look at what's going on in our mouths right now, guess what? It actually tells us what's going on in here. So back the train up and start working here. And while you're doing so, watch your mouth. Be careful in how we respond to the things going on around us. And if I can just say this, if you don't know how to guard your heart and attend it spiritually, that's okay. We all need to be discipled in the Word. Start reading the Bible, thinking about what you're reading, and praying to God about the things that you're reading. Also, I'd encourage you to reach out to another Christian here at Cornerstone Bible Church and ask them if they will help you to grow as a Christian. We call that being discipled. It's the right thing, and we should be continually doing it and doing spiritual good for one another. A wise person will speak words of grace, not so many words that lead people nowhere. Now, in verses 16 through 20, if you see here, our author states that a land will thrive when wise rulers are doing their job well, when money and resources are used for the good of the nation to protect and to build them up. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. 
Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of a nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength, not for drunkenness. Through sloth, uh, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Now, verse 17 is the ideal for a nation, right? A land where the rulers are educated, they're up to the task, they're wise, and they know that enjoyment has its rightful place behind taking care of the country, of its people. But verse 16, 18, and 19 tell us about what usually happens when corrupt or foolish people are in power. These are foolish leaders who see their positions as opportunity to get the best for themselves, to take advantage of these things. They aren't looking out for the people. They're looking out for themselves. They're lazy, selfish, gluttons, and drunkards, doing nothing to protect and lead the people of their country. Uh, it, it's, it's been said that verse 19, if you take a look there, is potentially the words of some sort of an ancient drinking song. Like, this is the way it goes. I'm not going to sing it for you right now, but you can kind of put an Irish tune to it and think about it later. It highlights for them what matters, right? Food, drink, and money to do whatever I want. A sorry state for those who are supposed to be using their resources to bless and protect their people. Verse 20 reminds us that even those, though these leaders are scumbags, although we might rightly be angry and frustrated by their poor leadership, we ought to never curse them. It may be tempting to talk poorly about your boss behind his or her back, but I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, don't do it. Don't do it. I've seen more than one situation in my own short life where someone's words got back to the boss. They, they didn't think it was going to be heard in some way. That person finds himself no longer working on that company or at that company anymore. Now, in those situations, were the words that they spoke behind their back true? Maybe. Sometimes they were really, absolutely, they really are true. That's not the point. Do you get it here? What he is saying is something far wider and important. He's telling us that the world that we currently live in is inhabited by those who have some measure of control. They have the power, if you remember this back here, that they have the power to do harm to other men. And the wisdom offered here is about being able to carry on in a wicked, foolish society. We aren't trusting that we can make everything right in the here and now with our wisdom. but We are trusting in the God who can make all things right for eternity. Wisdom fears God above men but it can also serve, help us survive in the modern context that hates God. Now, I want to ask, as we think about these things, uh, this has actually happened from last week, so we talked about it in our community group. I want to ask, do these words still apply to us today? I mean, a lot has happened since he wrote this book, right? Jesus is king. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and we are kingdom citizens. So does Ecclesiastes still apply to us on this topic? Well, I would simply direct you to the words of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. We kind of think about longitudinally what he's doing. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to proclaim that the kingdom is at hand. But as he instructs them, he tells them to act with great diplomacy and grace, interacting. Some who will believe, 
some who will not. He also says that their message will be received by some and rejected by others. And then in verse 16, he reminds them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, act wisely in the world that you're in. Now, this is not about compromise. It will not be, uh, you know, because we know that when we, when we come against something that is sinful, we should not do it. In fact, he shows us that so clearly. We know that the, the, the apostles said the same thing. We will obey God rather than men. This is about basic wisdom as we interact with this earthly kingdom, proclaiming the coming of Christ and his rule. In Colossians 4, this is probably my favorite tie. If you look at Colossians 4, 5, and 6, Paul says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes 10 is not dead, guys. He's actually bringing it forward for us. And today's message isn't just good advice for us, for those that live in this world. Like Everyone just listen up. This is just good advice. Because I'll tell you what, if it was just good advice, I think I would talk about leveraging the government that we are in. It's a wonderful thing, a gift for us to be part of this. It's very unlike most of the kingdoms throughout the world through most of time. We are a part of that governing society. We live in a great country, one with some really good founding principles. But this sermon is not about politics per se. In fact, the wisdom of this passage only makes sense if we still go back and believe 9-1. Remember that? I said that from the beginning. This is our perspective. He says, the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God, not in the hand of the unbelieving world around us. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. He's told us wisdom is superior. It's better than strength, loud words. It's better than weapons of warfare. But he's also told us here that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And I think if we're all honest about this, we respond to that truth in one of two ways. Either, number one, we give up and we live foolishly like the world around us. That's a real temptation. Or we get discouraged and we get bitter that we think that the wisdom that we are following doesn't give us the results that we want. Our expectations are broken, and we don't get the things that we think that we should have. I want to encourage you in faith today, uh, not to join with the fools, but rather to trust the God of eternity. Although the superiority of wisdom is often thwarted by sin and folly, wisdom is still the best way for us to navigate our lives under the sun. So, to kind of think about this whole passage... Here's the, here are the little things. Do not be angry about unworthy people in high places. Use wisdom as you deal with foolish people. Guard your heart and your lips that you would speak words that bring you favor before God. And do not curse those who are in authority. This kind of living is unsatisfying if this life is all that there is. Right? I get that. It's unsatisfying, but in chapter 9, verse 13, in chapter 10, verse 5, we've already read that, we see the key phrase that gives us hope. He is talking about life under the sun. Therefore, despite the results not being what we like here on earth, I would call us to trust the God 
who is over the Son. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us. These are not my thoughts. As John prayed earlier, Lord, it's so gracious of you as your thoughts are higher than our thoughts that you would give us yourself and you would communicate to us and you would give life to that, Lord, that you would be the one who would break hard hearts, preparing it. And Lord, you would encourage us through your power to obey. I pray now that we would do so with joy, even though the world around us does not respond the same way to true biblical wisdom. I pray that that wouldn't stop us from using it. Lord, may we love you, may we pursue wisdom, and use it to your honor and glory. Help us as we have temptations to live foolishly like the world, or the temptation to be bitter and angry when it doesn't seem to work out for us. God, what I'm asking, would you please increase our faith? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.